Welcome to Jews on Film. My name is Daniel Zana. I'm a video editor and documentary filmmaker. And with me, as always, is the Mazik of my life, Harry. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. I'll take it. My name is Harry Adensasser. I am a former film major, current Jewish film podcaster. And uh, we're delighted to be joined by a great guest this week. So our guest today is an L.A.-based producer whose production company, Boulder Light Pictures, has produced several films, including the Jewish horror film, The Vigil, which we'll be discussing today, the action thriller, Becky, starring Kevin James and Lulu Wilson, Wild Indian, starring Michael Grayeyes and Jesse Eisenberg, and Gone in the Night, starring Winona Ryder. Their most recent release, Barbarian, written and directed by Zach Kreger and starring Georgina Campbell, Bill Skarsgård, and Justin Long, opened as the number one movie in America before going on to make nearly $45 million at the box office. J.D. Lifshitz, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Tucson Film. Thank you so much, guys. Wow. Uh, what, a, what, a, what an introduction. Well, you know, we, we wanted to roll out the red carpet. You know, it's I feel like it's totally uh, appropriate in this case. Yeah. Yeah, not always do we get such a, a high-profile guest, so it's really, really is, I did mean it when I said <laughs> Pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, take it. No hard feelings, Harry, by the way, about the Mazda comment. I meant that in, 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 in as, as like, you know, lighthearted, anyway. Uh, yeah, some, sometimes I wonder when people listen if they haven't yet seen the movie or are familiar, and they just think that some of our comments are a little bit out of pocket, but hopefully that'll all make sense to them once we uh, once we run through the plot a little bit. But before we do that... I wanted to start just by asking you a couple questions, JD. So specifically, a question that we often ask our guests and that I was really interested to hear your thoughts on is, what would you say was your relationship with both film and, you know, being Jewish, Jewish film growing up? And I think you're a, you have a very unique situation where you've really, in some ways, married the two through your career. So how, how has that kind of developed and what inspired you in some ways towards the production career that you've you've been embarked on today and the movie and, and all this will obviously tie back into our discussion of the movie. Well, Baruch Hashem, you know, I, 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 uh, I, I grew up in the five towns, uh, which is a, you know, a pretty, I think it's like, I call it Hitler's nightmare, you know, oh, very, 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 very Jewish enclave. Um, uh, it's it, of, you know, in, on Long Island. And I, um, Always loved movies, specifically genre movies, as did Rafi, my partner. Um, we, we, we would make videos together when we were kids. Uh, and we were the two, you know, kind of genre fanatics that would uh, watch movies. I mean, when we were coming of age, it was like Hostel and the Hills of Eyes remake and so on. But really, in terms of my love of movies, I mean, I think film is an opportunity to tell, to communicate telepathically, right? It's a, an implicitly populist medium that, um, that I uh, just, you either, that I always felt like a connection to. I probably have like sensory processing or something. Like that's probably like the the clinical uh, answer <laughs> why I'm so right. attracted to to stories in general. Um, but but uh, there was always just a profound ephemeral connection that I felt to uh, entertainment, quote unquote, and and storytelling, and uh, specifically cinema. It's kind of a dreamer's paradise, I would say. So uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I moved to LA and we just started working on it. And uh, in terms of like marrying those two things, I mean, I'm you know I'm a uh, Orthodox Jew, so I uh, do my best to keep halacha and and uh, uh, you know I uh, rabbis that I consult with um, both uh, you know in in various aspects of my life and um, you know I I find that the two really I don't really like Jewish movies, which is going to be very funny considering the movie we're supposed to talk about today. Yeah, um, I was going to say. Yeah, like I, I find like keeping up with the Steins to be like more offensive than anything Mel Gibson has ever said. Um, uh, we have not yet uh, covered that one, but maybe in the future you'll come back and we'll talk about it. No, there's like so many. I mean, just I, there's a movie called When Do We Eat that I think is its own hate crime. Uh, <laughs> like I don't, I really, really loathe Jewish movies. I mean, A Serious Man was the first movie I saw when I when I turned seventeen uh, with my ID. Like that was that right. that, that 
that's different. The vigil is very inspired uh, by the opening of a serious man, right? Uh, specifically, and, and oh, uh, yeah. you know, it's like a spiritual successor, I, sh- I should say, in a sense. I mean, obviously, the, movie, the thesis of the movies are very different, but um, I feel about most Jewish movies the way most people probably feel about the jazz singer today. You know, the Joel yeah. original, not the sure, you know, sure, the, uh, Richard Fleischer remake. Yeah, um, I mean, I they're not all bad. Like, I mean. As as someone, I feel uh, you know compelled to take a defense of of Jewish film as someone who please, co-hosts please. A, a podcast here and say like I want to I want to just say that all of what you said is like incredible. I I want to say it's not all bad romantic comedies with Ben Stiller and Dustin Hoffman as no, his like corny ass dad. You're referring to um to uh, keeping the faith. That's the that's the that's the Ben Stiller comedy. And then I mean any of them, Fosters, which is the one. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 no, listen, I'm not saying that they're all bad. I mean, it's like, it's like, they're mostly bad. <laughs> like, I don't, you know, I don't think it's like, it, I'm trying to think of like really good Jewish movies. Well, I just, I just find them. It's very rare. I mean, like my favorite, Jew, a lot of my favorite Jewish movies are like movies that are about Jews made by non-Jews, right? Like, like Casino or Inglorious Bastards. Like those are like my favorite movies sure. Jewish in a sense and like they're you know they couldn't be less um uh fablemans is really good that's a jewish movie that's really really good yeah made by yeah. a jew yeah. Yeah. And, starring non-jews and I want, I want, you know there you go <laughs> go ahead harry and, and i want to ask just yeah like is do you think that there's a path towards doing the sort of positive representation or exploring jewish themes or jewish ideas in a more oh, positive way and it's just there's bad precedent yeah i know that's why we made the visual i yes i do think there's ways to i mean listen like I loved Adam Sand. If you want to call Adam Sandler movies Jewish, with the exception of Eight Crazy Nights, we have. I yeah. love those movies. Uncut right? Gems. I mean, that's that's yeah. a hugely. I mean, Uncut Gems is a hugely Jewish movie in my perspective. Uncut Gems to me, yeah, that's culturally Jewish. I think that like Uncut Gems to me, um, you know, is it, yeah, that's a different type of like. So if we're considering we like that Jewish, then I think that we're you know then like War Dogs is a Jewish movie. You know what I'm sure. saying? Like, to a different set. And, yeah. and that's why when I say casino, so like nice. specific, but casino, casino is the least Jewish movie that has some semblance of Jewish identity that I've ever seen. It's it's one of my favorite films of all time. You know, yeah. you know, Don Rickles is the only Jewish thing about that movie, you right. know, and maybe Kevin Pollack, but um, but but Don Rickles is enough to like make it, it to, to he's so big that he makes a Jewish element right kind of yeah. here. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I think you you got a list of the podcast because like all of what we do is is take things that are not super Jewish and pull out and get on the stretch train and we make it Jewish and we kind of your you know, job can be very easy today. Oh sure, yeah. Today we're gonna. <laughs> this is a layup for sure. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah no, absolutely. Like Woody Allen movies are Jewish. I like Woody Allen. I mean, you know, movies like I think that um, certainly like some of them. Those aren't like um, you know what I traditionally think of when I think of Jewish themed films, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's a, that's kind of a, a horse of a different color. I, I just mean like there was a theater growing up called the Malvern that was like in Long Island, which is like the quote unquote art house theater. The movies that played there are like the movies that I talk about hating. Like they're, they're, sure. they're movies that are made for their, their movies. They're like quote unquote, nice movies made for Jews to, to like ancestrally laugh at their own jokes and heritage. And, right. and, um, it's like kitschy to me, you know, it's like bar mitzvah humor. And that's right, not, right, right, right. That's not um, something that I'm particularly attracted to. We're like, yeah. you know, February dramas with, with all due respect to her Rachel Vice. You know what I'm saying? Like, like that's very much not what I care about when it comes to like, you know, we're like the, those, those movies are not, are not particularly uh, uh, interesting to me, but movies that have elements, you know, of Jewish characters. Uh, sure. Right. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. It sounds to me a little bit like the distinction we've made in the past between sort of Jewish context when you're just inhabiting a world that's Jewish, that, 
is not telling you it's Jewish and it's not trying to tell you the lesson or make fun of itself, but it's just like, this is just the truth of the experience of these people, which in, in some ways as explicitly Jewish as the movie we're discussing today is, it, it, it never really is apologizing for its Jewishness. It's just, this is a story that's happening in a Jewish world. So it kind of just moves on with that. So I, uh, I, I do, I, I recognize the distinction that I think you're trying to pull here. And I consider my work here done. I've convinced you some Jewish films are not that bad. What do you think? <laughs> Can we agree to that? No, I know. I'm just, I'm just busting chops here. Before we move on. Go for it. Go quick. for it. And at the at the risk of embarrassing you, JD, our, our guest, but I, I just wanted to point out, I loved what you were saying in the beginning about just sort of seeing not necessarily just clinging to those models that you had of, you know, your way into the film industry. I mean, I uh, I think I mentioned this to you briefly, but I this is obviously for me, this is not the first time I'm talking to you because I spoke to you about seven, eight years ago in a conversation that I'm sure you don't remember that. I was put in touch uh -oh. with you as just someone, it was just, no, like we, we know each other, you know, through, uh, through cousins and stuff, but it was just someone put me in touch. I, I was, you know, in high school, hoping to break my way into the film industry. And in some ways, you know, this, this podcast can be a, considered a spiritual sequel of that. And I, uh, and I, you were the name that was thrown to me as the guy who, you know, grew up in the five towns, went there and did it and uh it's just exciting to be talking to you i, I appreciated you you sort of clinging to your inspirations because again at the risk of embarrassing you you were one of those for me uh, way back when so uh it, it's great to have you on i got very nervous when you said you that's not embarrassing at all you do that all day <laughs> i thought <laughs> I, we could keep running with that yeah no i thought you were gonna bring up like a high school video i made or something and i was <laughs> actually you know. can you cue the video harry we got no, no, no. Yeah, exactly. too bad this is an audio medium yeah exactly would have been good stuff <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you know, again, I think that like, um, and, and when I say Woody Allen, again, I'm talking about like the movies, not the, not the, you know, that I don't want to, that's, I'm not, I'm yeah, gotcha. but, yeah. um, but the, the, you know, early Woody Allen movies are like implicitly Jewish. They're not always explicitly Jewish, you know? Sure. Sure. Yeah. I think the things, Total. yeah. Anyway, I'm beating a dead horse here, but you, no, no, yeah. I think, I don't think we disagree. I think we're just, again, we're looking at that. We're, it's two different prisons by which yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think some of the the more interesting films are the ones that are not super on the nose. Like, uh, you know, we still have not done Fiddler on the Roof because like, you know. One of my least favorite movies of all time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's fair. And and that's, yeah, I, I think some of the other things, you know, like we'll watch like an Elliot Gould movie, like The Long Goodbye. And like that, we are like teasing out elements of the Jewishness or you know, uh, like a serious man or uncut jams or I don't know, all sorts of, there's a lot of good stuff in there, but I totally hear what you're saying about that sort of sticky bar mitzvah humor. Um, yeah, it's, it's yeah, like a, it's I, like a routine in the Catskills, right? It's yeah. like you would imagine that yeah, yeah. sort of, well, I'm not really routine in the Catskills. Like I love Don Rickles. Like he's my right. favorite of all time. Sure. Um, that that's good Jewish humor because <laughs> it's not, it's not apologizing for anything and it's not patting right. people. It's not giving yeah. out Patient trophies to the audience. Totally. Yeah. I'm so pretentious. This is repulsive. You you probably <laughs> like all your viewers uh in this in this prelude. It's good to kind of, you know, kind of get a sense of where everyone's head is at. I think as we jump into the movie itself and discuss it, um, we'll have lots of questions for you about the making of the film and and thought processes behind it. But do you know what time it is? I think it's time for the IMDb summary. So, you got uh, it, dude. We've got a good short one here and uh, just set the scene for the film. And it reads, a man providing overnight watch to a deceased member of his former Orthodox Jewish community finds himself opposite a malevolent entity. Ooh. <laughs> I thought we were doing the movie where the little girl kills the Nazis. <laughs> 
Which one's that? Mad Sexy. It was, it's a joke for the for the two people listening who who one of them being my business partner, the other one being my my assistant. Listening that are uh, that are both like uh, completists and I've seen that. Got it. Okay. Mm. Awesome. You do a double um, feature. Totally. So um, yeah, we're, we're going to be discussing the vigil, like we said. Thank you, Harry, for for discussing or for providing a nice summary. I feel like it's we we do get Orthodox Jewish in the summary right away. It's kind of unavoidable. There's a lot of films, JD, that it's such a Jewish film, and yet they somehow manage to omit the fact that the main character is Jewish, living in a Jewish world, and in other movies. So I'm glad that they mentioned it here. Why don't we take a quick break? And we'll come right back and we'll kind of dive into our plot of the film, The Vigil. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with J.D. Lifshitz to talk about The Vigil. Harry, do you want to get us kicked off and get this story started? Sure. So uh, as always, we're going to run through the plot beat by beat, kind of discuss each part as we get up to it. The only difference being this week, we're sitting down with one of the producers who probably spent a lot more time thinking about the film than we had. So JD, I, I invite you to call us out if we get any details wrong, throw it in, just help us out here. But uh, we're going to do our be- as best as we can to just kind of give, you know, a couple of the beats from the outline. So um, the film begins where with some text on screen that basically explains the role of a Jewish showmare. We then witness a young boy as he's forced by a Nazi soldier to shoot a young woman. In the background, a shadowy figure approaches them. The film then cuts to a modern day where we meet the support group that's in a meeting of former, formerly Hasidic Jews who have you know, clearly um, gone a little bit more secular, left a little bit, and they're learning how to acclimate to this new secular world. So um, in that sequence, we're introduced to Yaakov, who's the lead uh, protagonist of the film, and he shares that he's struggling to find a job and pay his rent. While he's packing up to leave, he's approached by Sarah, who invites him to get coffee the next day. But that really just sets the scene for the world that we're going to inhabit. Yeah, I think uh, it's worth calling out for those not familiar, the idea, like, you know, we're not watching the movie now, you're listening to our podcast discuss the movie, but the idea of the showmare is someone who will sort of watch over a dead body before it is taken away to the the burial service. Uh, and it, you're essentially watching it to kind of protect it from any sort of malevolent spirits. Um, and yeah, anything, anything JD to kind of start us off about, uh, about this section? Thank you so much. It feels so craven to talk about my own movie uh, truly crass, um, uh, but that that is the that is the lot of a producer um, ultimately. So it's a good uh, move. Good move. So we're gonna, yeah, you know, I was. It's funny because I did a series. Uh, Joe Dante, who's the director of Gremlins, and uh, among others, he he, he uh, uh, very graciously had me do uh, a series called Trailers from Hell for him. Um, and the first season that I did it, he said, "You can talk about one of your own films." And I said, "I, I even I uh, am not that shameless." And then. Um, and then I found out that Quentin was doing this, and I was like, okay, yeah, I, I've become that shameless. <laughs> I, did, I did one for the vigil that'll be airing soon, I think. Um, but um, but this this is also part of that re-release press uh, tour that I'm doing. Uh, so it's really great to talk about the movie again, and, and kind of you know we just got to screen the movie, the QC, the print recently. It's extremely emotional for me, um, and uh, you know thank God, very grateful. Um, but but it, it had me you know re-appreciating so much that I love about the movie. The movie really is a personal film to us. And it was a turning point for us. And so to get to open it up again is so fun. Um, we love this movie. I, I'll just now having set the table like that and alienated everybody with my nonsense. Uh, <laughs> uh, this movie to us, we wanted to make something that was um, extremely authentic. You know, we, we would jokingly pitch it as like 
Igmar Bergman meets James Wan, right? Do the give you the the commercial scare set pieces um, and and tension and and atmosphere of a of a great horror picture, um, but uh, or really tell a, a trauma like an extreme. Again, this was before trauma had been so played out. I think now it's maybe people are ready for a break, but at the time this felt really cool. You know, an intergenerational yeah. trauma picture against the backdrop of a, a really exciting, scary horror film, and so um, uh, you know that meant feeling like you could you know, reach out and touch the movie. It needed to feel organic and, right. and alive. And so uh, we worked very hard to, to you know, we had several advisors from the from the um, uh, ultra Orthodox community on the picture. Um, and a lot of the cast were, form, were from that from that community and had left. Uh, Dave Davis, who did gives the incredible performance at the center of the picture, uh, uh, was not from that community and learned Yiddish oh. uh, and, and really dove in. To, Couldn't tell. That's cool. Yeah, it, was, uh, it felt really, great. Yeah. And so, you know, we opened that movie, the movie opens at a footsteps meeting, which like, you know, right. you know what is, it's, it's, it's like you said, it transitions people uh, out of that community. And I, I never felt like I'd seen a movie that didn't, you know, I never felt like I'd seen a movie about this community that wasn't either like victimizing or fetishizing or condemning, you know, the yeah. practices. And, and to me, that's, that's kind of, you know, that all of that I find kind of offensive and pandering. And so um, to do just an authentic movie where this is that world, we're not, we're not, um, we're not being schmaltzy and false, but simultaneously we're not passing judgment on other people and their yeah. and so on. And so um, uh, we're we're um, uh, we're we're just trying to tell the most true story possible. And so um, you know that especially to start at a footsteps meeting, which can very very easily um, you're you're playing with fire to a certain aspect of that community. Mm-hmm. And sensitive there was very important to us, and it's totally foreign to most people who don't know anything about the community. Fun behind the scenes fact that scene was shot at Adam Margolis, who was one of the other producers on the movie, his apartment in Brooklyn. Oh, nice. But anyways, that's that feels like a good place to start. If you're playing uh, Jews on film bingo at home, you can put a check over intergenerational trauma because it does seem to come up fairly often. So for those of you keeping score at home, you know, JD said the magic words. Harry, over to you. Yeah, I just I wanted to respond to some of that because I loved a lot of what you said. I think you know, something that I, I will probably say a couple times this episode, but I really felt watching this movie was it really felt like a, a very sort of by Jews for Jews. And in a way that, ah, yeah. like you're saying, it, it didn't feel like it was pandering. It didn't feel like it was coming from this outsider perspective. And it's it's funny because in the opening conversation, you spoke about, you know, those very sort of for Jews films that are, you know, inside jokey. And and I recognize what's what's so disagreeable about that. But I think in this case, it really felt like it was just very trusting of its audience. I think it does that at first he needs to do a lot. It has to be expository because like you said, people just haven't seen who aren't familiar with those types of meetings, don't know what's going on. And I clocked a couple of lines from people saying, you know, they should really teach us this. This is hard. No one ever taught us how to get a job and just enough to, I think, set the stage for, by the way, by the way, just to touch on what you're saying. I find all sure. that stuff cringy when I watch it. And to me, that is sort of my least favorite scene in the movie. Hmm. But yeah. It just speaks to my cynicism because most, and and also my contextually understanding of the community, because most people that I speak to, they are obsessed with that scene because they've never seen anything like it, right? So they're not talking yeah. it as exposition because they truly need the exposition in a way that I probably you don't, right? So so it is a different experience, but yes, I agree that 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 scene is the sort of the hardest for me to watch. I really, I'm not kidding. Like everything that happens from when he leaves that meeting, and I hate everything. Like we're we're my partner is <laughs> cynical, but everything sure, that sure. happens when they leave that meeting, with the exception of the flashbacks or the first flashback, um, I adore in the movie. Like for the most part, like yeah. there's like so few things I would change. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, I think that first scene, I, I think you're probably right about it, but you, it also, I think, gets away with being, you know, expository because it, it definitely balances it with a lot of like, you know, and I, I don't I don't have them all written down in front of me, but just a couple of lines there for someone, you know, like us, I think, who are just more familiar with this world can pick up on the Yiddish and the language and, you know, even the accents that just felt so familiar. Mm-hmm. Like, I think for us, you, you're getting this they're they're giving you they're not spoon feeding you the rest of the world you know you have the broader context but there was just i just felt a level of trust and that's throughout the film we'll talk totally. about you know the times that he's reciting to hill him and the times where you know there's just he says shema at the end where we're not saying people say shema when they think they might die because it's supposed to be the last like there's no there's none of that context or even explaining what it means it's just some of it is like if you understand this this really feels lived in the world and it makes sense and if you don't it still can pass as an effective moment which you know i, I can't speak to that ex- perspective completely but that was right. what i got from it totally innately i think it's a lot of it's instinctual i mean we we sold i mean fun fact you know mm2 entertainment in singapore and and i think cj was involved in this in korea they got the um the indonesian remake rights to make a, a muslim version of it in indonesia Ooh, okay um, cool. and i think that speaks to just the universal nature of the movie right it's not it's not you don't have to know we we very consciously did not spoon feed the audience and um and i don't think you need it i think that it's you understand based on context and style what is happening when it is happening you know, totally. totally. Yeah. I mean, I think it helps to set the stage, you know, kind of as we kind of continue on through the plot. Um, after Yaakov leaves the meeting, he's approached by uh, Reb Shulam, who's played uh, awesomely by Manasha Lustig. And, you know, he was a member of his of his community and he wants to talk to him. So he comes over to him and asks him to work as a showmare, which is, as we said, you know, someone to watch over a dead body, over someone named Ruben Lipvak, and he was a Holocaust survivor who recently passed away. And uh, Rab Shulam hopes that, in a not-so-subtle way, tries to bring him back to the faith, and Yaakov is a little bit reluctant, but, you know, he sort of, through the grapevine, Rab Shulam knows that he's kind of hard-pressed and doesn't have the money. So they, in, in a very clever kind of, like, negotiating back and forth, he finally gets uh, uh, $400 to the job and he reluctantly agrees to do it. 200? I'll do it for five. Darn it. He's going to me. Emis? Yeah. He was desperate. He asked me. Emis? Yeah. Okay, so I'll finish. I'm going to People in the community that don't have any family and no friends. It's me, okay? I'm watching the body. Can I give you 400? I will not spare. Okay. Yeah, a deal? Okay, yeah, deal, deal. So Yaakov and Shulam arrive at the house and he meets Mrs. Litvak, who uh, Reb Sholem says is suffering from Alzheimer's disease. And, uh, you know, right away she tells Yaakov that he's wrong for the part. And I forgot to mention earlier, but Reb Sholem said someone else had gone and had left kind of almost immediately. They said they were too scared. So Yaakov shrugs off this sort of suggestion that he's not the right person for the job. And Shulam informs informs him that the Hever uh, Kedisha or the burial services will be arriving in about five hours. So that's sort of our like, you know, our ticking clock that we're kind of looking at throughout the entire movie. And yeah, so now the sort of plot is in motion. We we start and, uh, you know, he he starts out his uh his showmare duties. Um, but I'll pause here because I think before we kind of like dive into all the, the creepiness that's going to happen, 
uh, and, you know, I kind of wanted to get, get some thoughts here. I love this scene so much. Like I love the, scene, right. the, the sequence right. of them walking through uh, yeah. Brooklyn is so atmospheric and exciting to me. And it feels like a classic austere genre piece. Like it feels it, to me, it's, I, I often think of like maybe a hammer horror movie in a weird way. I know it's, it's obviously it's it, and, 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 and by the same token, like a seventies New York movie, you know, like it's, that, that, that's what I got. Yeah. Like there's a, uh, and not even a seventies New York horror movie, like just like a, like a, like it could be like a, you know, like right, right. I, I could think even of like not taxi driver per se, but maybe like a Bill Lustig movie. I mean, there's, there's a grind to where they're walking around and there's something alive about it. And I think the Safdies capture this really well, certainly something like good time, but you're a stat. We, I think it does such a great job. And I can say this because I didn't direct the movie. So it's really just kudos to Keith Thomas and Zach Cooperstein, our DP, but like, there's an and and Dave and Monasha who are firebrands in this in, in in this, but like there's an energy to it and there's a scope that buys you hopefully the goodwill of the audience to then be confined to a house. Like it makes the movie feel far grander. Um, and uh, you know, it's just I love it's like I find that sequence intoxicating. When we made the print for the new Bev, the the sequence I was most excited to see was that because i was like that looked filmic to me even on the dcp like and it's not we shot it on the aerial x it wasn't it wasn't um we didn't shoot on film but to me that there was something just so cozy about that um and i just think Manasha and dave are both uh just knocked out of the park in their performances and it's really funny to watch two jews negotiate at the start (laughs) right very jewish i I think I think that scene also does everything you were saying in the beginning of not kind of objectifying these characters and making them little puppets sort of in these rooms, but it it opens them up and it gives them a world and everything about their conversation is completely respectful. I mean, we know that Reb Shulam is obviously, he has this long game. He's, he's trying to convince him to come back and you can imagine they've had many conversations like this, but, but not in a way that's so, you know, vicious or aggressive. Like it really, it feels like these people had a relationship before. They're continuing that relationship to whatever degree it exists, you know, since Yaakov has has left the faith, so to speak. But it, it's just all clocked in a way that I think is is respectful. It's it's part of, it, it's real world. And it's, you know, this night was not supposed to be as momentous as ultimately it would become. It was really just going to be, you know, one of their classic walk and talks through through the city. The one other thing that I wanted to clock from this sequence that I was very excited to, to hear your thoughts about was that that line that we, that you mentioned, Daniel, where he says, where Reb Shulam tries to tell him, sitting the vigil brings you closer to the community. And he, right. I know he says, it's mamish God's plan that, that you're going to be doing this. And <laughs> again, lo- love that. And I know we, we said, you know, generational trauma or intergenerational trauma is obviously a huge part of this movie. And it's a huge part of the Jewish experience, you know, for better or for worse. There's a reason that it's captured in a lot of these movies we discuss, because especially from the Holocaust, World War II, which has, you know, been inherited by generations of Jews. And for the first time in history, we're a couple enough generations removed where maybe we won't all know someone who was personally affected. But that's something that stays. Well, by the way, I don't know, we're both wearing glasses. All like, of us. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I'm saying like that, that people don't realize what a population bottleneck is, but it's a, you know, most interesting. Jews are oftentimes, that's a, a technical term, but Jews are oftentimes nearsighted or lactose intolerant or so on because of, because of genocide. Yeah. Wow. Intermarry with, meaning they had to constantly marry their closer and closer relatives. When you have a small pool and you keep swiping people off, right. and they have to inbreed and inbreed and inbreed, you get genetic mutations. Essentially. C- certainly on the Ashkenaz side, I've heard that. Yeah. No, that sure. is, it is the Ashkenaz side. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 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 No, and that, that makes total, I mean, that's awful and, and makes a lot of sense. And that's just, 
there's a reason that trauma is so so much a part of a lot of the the Jewish stories that we've seen in a lot of our traditions and holidays. I mean, it's so deeply rooted in there. And I think that creates this tension of, I mean, it's the tension of the movie is how much are we supposed to align ourselves with that and empathize with some of that trauma that maybe we didn't experience personally when we're living in such a, in, a, in I think a better time and place and how much do we need to cut ourselves off? So, so this one line, I think foreshadows just a little bit of that relationship when he says, you know, sitting the vigil, that'll bring you closer. Like does, you know, him sinking himself up with this death, you know, with this process of watching over the dead body and ultimately that brings him closer to the trauma. Is that him bringing him closer to his Jewishness? Like, is that ah, what we're saying is your relationship good, good there? And, I like that. And yeah, and, and I don't know what the movie's answered. And I guess we'll discuss how the movie answers that. Yeah. But, you know, he talks about his God. This is God's plan to bring you closer. And it's just such an interesting avenue that the way to get close is to, you know, deal with the Come, death of our ancestors. Yeah, exactly. Come have a little cup of trauma here, you know, like a, 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 ni- a nice warm bowl of trauma to get the. Yeah, I, I, I think that for me, um, you know, there's a lot of ways to read what Rev Shulam is saying. I think that he's, um, uh, I think that, I think that he's, he's as a character is probably speaking more on the idea of like, you know, uh, you know, uh, as it says in Perkyabo, it's like a, a mitzvah leads to another mitzvah. So like, if he's going to do this right. mitzvah, he's probably going to want to do more mitzvahs. He's probably, you know, he's probably going to go to Shacharis and so on. Um, and, uh, and I think that like, you know, uh, it, 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 I, it that's, you touched on something earlier that like, Rev Shulam is not, nefarious he's not no. trying there's no there's no uh big reveal we joked about uh <laughs> the twist of the movie was, he was setting him up you know um uh there's no there's, Reb Shulam really does care about Yaakov he cares right. about him as a human being you know what I'm saying and he, and he, and he wants absolutely and Yaakov recognizes that and that's why their relationship is so is so tense and so fractured because they're sitting on completely opposite ends of the table um but they but there is this chess match of like mutual respect um, versus uh, uh, kind of concerned empathy. I, I mean, I've been there right. before. Like I certainly have had, you know, rabbis who were in a, in a warm, loving way, encouraging me to do more, to participate more. And, you know, I think sometimes I'm only speaking for myself, but sometimes, you know, you have like a knee jerk reaction to someone trying to like loop you in and ask you to do more than what you're comfortable doing. So I don't know. I, I it felt familiar to me. I'd be like, are you sure you don't want to come to like services? Do you want to come? And no, 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 I'm good. I'm good. I got other things going on, you know? So I, I, I felt that a little bit. Yeah. I think it's like prosthetization versus sincere care right sure like, like, mm-hmm. i think that that's that's something that we were touching on too like like i don't know like i think i think um it's a complicated thing are you viewing are you viewing uh what you're doing as sort of a point system um or uh or like a a, a way to step on a, on a pedestal and like down i saw the whale last night um and yeah. uh very different movie uh similarities to the vigil quite a few actually certainly in the staging of the picture but um but you know it, what what's your it, it, i think everything in life is boiled down i say this quite a bit but like i think everything like just boiled down to like good faith versus bad faith right and you can have two people doing the exact same thing for wildly different reasons and that says everything right the implications are profound you know but we're sure a good guy i think <laughs> totally not perfect nobody's perfect but you sure. know he cares about you. Yeah, absolutely. And Yaakov cares about him, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because I think your perspective and on uh, on Rav Shulam is, is very fair. And the first time we we encounter him, it's when uh, Yaakov is leaving from that session that he was in. And the, the person who's leading the session says, I thought we discussed this. You coming here and harassing our membership. I don't want to have to call the police again. It's okay. Like, it's fine. 
Ik vond Remington op een moment. En als Jacob wil praten, weet hij waar hij kan vinden. Het is oké, Dylan, het is oké. Ik ben fijn. Jacob, je kunt me get me als het turns into something uncomfortable. Dank je. By the way, the first time we meet him, it's like the ultimate juice flotation. You think that you think in the way that we stage that, and this is like on all of us. You think that he's the monster. He's Bruce and he's Shark and Jaws, right? Right, right, right. Totally. Yeah, originally, it was like the, the the arrival score, like, but it, but what we did is right. <laughs> bomb, bomb as the camera's slowly pushing in there. Right. And he's you know, like leaning uh, against the thing. Joke, yeah, yeah. He's smoking that cigarette. And it's just like, it's maybe the coolest shot in the movie. It's just so, it's so atmospheric and creepy. And again, like he is the monster uh, when you first meet him. Uh, and that, uh, again, it's not, it's not, uh, it's it's sort of a misdirect and and um but it's worth the misdirect because it's just so cool. The movie in its in its content and just as an exercise of the experience of watching it, it really is just towards empathy and towards treating all these people. And you know, and we'll we'll see that obviously with with Mr. Lipok and just learning the story there. And it's just it's listening to people, it's learning who they are. And so that brings us to the next part of the movie where Yaakov actually begins his his vigil, his eponymous vigil. And Almost immediately, he starts hearing strange noises. You know, he starts hearing strange noises coming from the kitchen. And uh, he sees little, there's a little twitch coming out of the, the dead body that, you know, we've seen it's, it's covered in a sheet, but it starts moving a little bit. And uh, he eventually investigates in the kitchen. And that's where he catches the first glimpses of this shadowy figure. He begins to see nightmarish imagery and, you know, these very evocative memories. He has that whole instance with where he's drinking from a cup and the water turns dark. And it's just a lot of the haunting has begun, basically. You know, a lot of this is not going to be as effective in my description as it will actually experiencing the movie. So I'll, I'll gloss over it a little bit, but rest assured, it's very it's very frightening. So he eventually comes across a photo of Mr. Lipbach and he sees his family and, you know, the shadowy figure is already looming behind there. So he, he is able to brush all of these aside and he falls asleep in his chair. And that's when we have this nightmare sequence we see in his perspective. He remembers who, and I want to say he's walking with his brother. Is that correct? Yep, that's correct. A lot of people think it's his son, but it is indeed his brother. Just wanted to, I, I'm happy we we have someone to confirm that with. So that, that was great. So he's walking with his with his younger brother and um, they are stomped in the street by this, you know, group of anti, this, this crew of anti-Semitic bullies, you know, for lack of a better word. And they end up pushing Yaakov aside and they torment his young brother. They, you know, play with his payas and just, you know, give him a hard time while we see Yaakov watching fearfully. So Yaakov kind of suddenly wakes up from this and he goes on to experience some more strange events. We have the lights flickering. We see, you know, more of the twitching. And uh, we'll end this section by saying there's this other great moment where he receives a video where he gets to watch himself while he was taking the nap and we see a, a mysterious figure comes over and, and touches him. So again, lots of creep factor, but yeah, I wanted to hear totally. if you guys had any thoughts about oh, yeah. you know, the beginning of the haunting and, and how this was cast. I mean, the the sound, the sound design in this movie was like very visceral, like the cracking of the toenails and the the, oh, the, I forgot oh, about the that crackings yeah, of that, the hands. That got me. Oh God. The I had to like pause the movie like several times. And I think that's like a a, a mark of a good horror movie where you just kind of need to pause it for a second and take a breath to like soak in all the scariness of it all. But I think, you know, as as we 
progress through the film, like you said, Harry, stuff happens at a more regular cadence and a little bit more creepily. You know, first we sort of see a shadowy figure and then we see the feet of a shadowy figure and then it like twitches and a nail cracks off. And then, you know, he's drinking water, like you said, and then it turns into this like black, hairy, slimy thing that crawls away. And then it's interesting, uh, JD, before you were talking about misdirects, right? So the, the video, Harry, I don't know if you mentioned, but the person petting him was an old lady's hand. And so mm -hmm. like automatically right. you're like, oh, it, it's it's the it's Mrs. Lipfox. She's creeping out and she's like, you know, she's doing something mysterious. And there's, you know, so we're again led on this sort of what's going on, trying to figure out what's uh, what's happening. And because we, we really haven't really talked to Mrs. Lipfox besides her sort of dismissing him and then going upstairs to nap. So, you know, the flashback scene, obviously it weighs heavily on him. He takes pills. And I think at this point in the film, I think he's running low on his pills. So there's like a number of different factors kind of going on here as his uh, psyche is being tested with all this crazy stuff going on. The flashbacks was my least favorite thing with the brother is my least favorite thing in the movie, but it doesn't matter because it's not my movie anymore. Right. Like in the sense of that was always the thing where I felt, I feel there's a precision to the, to the movie uh, in every um, kind of throughout once he leaves the footsteps meeting, there is a precision that is like, I adore and I'm obsessed with. And I think it's just the way Keith and Coop, our DP staged everything. It's just outrageous. Um, it's, it's eye candy. It's, it's to a point just so immaculate, um, almost like decadent in the way that it's structured. Um, and, uh, and I just feel like the flashbacks, we never, I don't know if we ever really nailed, at least to me, I never felt as strong in what his trauma was and how it played out. And we like did a lot in sound design to, um, make it feel more dreamlike because, you know, it was kind of, it's more verite than the rest of the movie. Right. And to me, it's always kind of felt jarring. That said, like, I, I think I'm mostly wrong about it. Like, I think that it plays well for other people. So it's irrelevant how I feel. Um, and uh, and it and it moved people who I admire so much. So so who cares what I think? Um, but that was always the thing where I was like, oh, man, I wish we could go back and do the flashbacks again, because I, I don't feel like we nailed them in the way that we wanted to. Um, and some of that was like a time thing. Some of that was just like a sure the style of it being different. It might not. I just don't know if it was. If I, I didn't feel that it was completely nailed. Um, and there's something that Keith and 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 I would always talk about, and and um, uh, uh, like do we reshoot it? Um, but but ultimately, I think it works for most people, so it's irrelevant. Um, I'm just giving you the inside baseball. I think the lesson there is like sometimes the things that you think are problems aren't actually problems, or even if they are, they're not problems to the extent that you think that they are. Sure. Um, I mean, I I can relate totally. Like often when I'm doing a video project and I like watch it. It's like the craftsman's curse, like anything you work on and you show it to someone else, you only notice the mistakes and what you would have done differently. And I just want to say it's a great film. You don't need me to tell you this, but like it works for, you know, for for scaring people and, and, and everything. But I totally understand like this idea that like you're only going to notice what's wrong with it. I think it's a testament to how good the movie is. Yeah. Rafi and I truly love that movie in a very unique way. We feel mm -hmm. a ownership of it emotionally. Like, and it was just a great experience working with Keith. We were so simpatico. Like Keith, Rafi, and I were so, it was, it, it was the most at that time, like creatively fulfilling relationship that we'd had with a filmmaker. We really wanted to make the same movie. We right. were challenging each other in a way that was never content. Like it was always, it was always, it was like this loving creative relationship that was remarkable. And, and we made, you know, again, 95% exactly what we wanted to make. And to me, that was what made the flashback so frustrating was just like, 
I truly, there's so little I would change about the movie. So little. Like I watch it and can get lost in it and appreciate it. Um, and so that's why that stuff bugs me. Otherwise, like if the movie wasn't as good, I wouldn't, or I didn't think it was as good. Right. I wouldn't be bothered by it. But no, I, I think that like, you know, the, the there's so much, we tried to have every different type of subgenre of horror in the picture too. So it's like, you've got gross out horror with the nail and the, mm-hmm. and the thing. You've got like, what's, who's there horror with the shadow and the background, which I think is actually also Adam or Gold. Um, you know, you have um, you have like visceral body horror, with, with, which comes later, which we'll get to, we'll get to when he leaves the house. But like, we wanted to really jam pack it, right? Um, which I'm really every time I watch it, I'm kind of like mesmerized. Like it's like a it's like a haunted house, and I've seen the movie so many times, like pro- maybe more than any movie made, or if not more than any movie made, I've made, I've seen it so many times, and I love watching it every time, and I like consistently forget about a stare or two because there are just so many of them. That's yeah. it, that, That's a great segue to a question I actually wanted to ask you about, because you said there's all these different kinds of horror that you're working in there. And spiritual horror and religious possession are such a foundational, I would say, subgenre of horror. You know, some of the most well-known horror classics are are based out of this possession spirituality. Very often it's, it's you know, Catholic possession. And, and I think you took it in a very different direction by doing it with Jewish. But, you know, can you speak to the sort of inspiration that you that you think the movie takes from some of those movies and does it try to render it more Jewish or is it really just taking the keys from that spirituality? I think for me, I never viewed it as a possession movie because it's not, you know, like Mr. There's an exorcism at the end, but it's not, it's not an exorcism. It's, it's, it's an exorcism of like pain, right. In a sense, it's, it's sort of like fundamentally in a sense, different functionally speaking. But um, I think the exorcist, the biggest thing that I think of with the exorcist in terms of the relationship is taking something ancient and setting it in an urban setting. Like the vigil is one of the few urban horror movies that I, that I felt like I've seen in the past couple of years, you know, most right. horror movies mm-hmm. suburbia or small towns. And the fact that like, or like nondescript locations. Uh, and the fact that we take place in, in New York city in a section of New York city that you almost never see, certainly not in genre movies. That was really exciting to me, you know, kind of like sure. brick and cold stone uh, in, in fall, winter weather, you know, and, and that's, that's, really interesting to me. I guess that's like a big influence that I think we took. And then of course there's a spiritual component, but it wasn't, I don't know if our, um, if we were so 1408 is a movie that really, I think inspired certain aspects of the movie of the vigil. Um, but that's not a religious horror movie. That's just a, that's just a Stephen King movie. I'm curious. Did you film it in uh, sunset park, like Borough park area? No, I think we did like a scene there. Uh, I think we did, we might've done the, the walking there, but, um, like when, when, Rip Shalom and Jakob walking, but the prim, uh, primarily I think it was in um, it was in uh, Brighton Beach. I want to say okay, gotcha. It wasn't like an Orthodox neighborhood. We just decorated it. Got it. Okay, <laughs> cool. The least authentic thing in the movie, right? <laughs> it works. Yeah, no, totally. I I, I bought it. So uh, Mrs. Lipfock appears downstairs and she explains to Yaakov that a mazik has been haunting her and her husband his whole life. Um, she adds that she kind of like drove her kids away so that they wouldn't sort of catch it. F- f- you know, they wouldn't catch the the evilness of, of this demon. And she points uh, Yaakov towards the basement where he finds sort of a, a TV playing a recording of Mr. Lipfock and his wife explaining uh, that he caught the mazik at Buchenwald, and uh, when he dies, it'll kind of latch on to the next sort of person who's broken. So the only way to sort of banish it is to like burn its face uh, the first night it appears to you. And uh, so suddenly we get this like slow turnaround, and Yaakov sees the mazik pop up behind him, and he runs upstairs totally scared. Uh, he then uh, gets a call from his doctor, who is played awesomely uh, by Fred Malamed. Malamed? Malamed? Um, and uh, he he gets a call from his doctor um, 
you know, regarding a prescription he wants filled. And he realizes that the voice itself is that of the Mazik, who's kind of further tormenting and, and, and tricking him and uh, torturing him, he thinks, for, for letting his brother die. So that's sort of the first uh, introduction of this Mazik. Um, I wanted to ask kind of how we settled, how you settled on the Mazik, like sort of the cousin of the Dibuk, which is a little bit more of a popular demon in sort of the J- Jewish uh, mythology. That's yeah. key. That's all Keith. That Keith, is okay. the original draft of the script. Yeah, because I had not heard of it. And there's there's a lot of uh, the Mazikim are, are like harmful spirits that were said to have been created on the, the day of the eve of the Sabbath of creation, according to in the in the Talmud. So um, I had not Keith, heard of them before. So, yeah, news Keith, to me. Keith went to uh, JTS. He's pretty well versed in, in um, Jewish history and, and theology. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, that was all him. Nice. I mean, I know, you know, I think the Gamar and Brachas might talk about it, but, but, uh, but I, you know, but Keith came with that in the script. It wasn't like we were like, we don't want to do a, you know, we want, we want to do this specific. It wasn't, it was something that you know, really, I got to give Keith credit for. Fantastic. And uh, as far as like the design of the creature, which we kind of talk about, we could talk about that later, but like. 90% the, Keith. I, 90%. And I was in 90% because like there's 10% might be like our, our, uh, our special effects team, but it was really Keith, Keith, uh, that Keith is so clued into that stuff and he still understands it. Yeah. I mean, there was a, I don't know if it comes up now or later, but like the way that Mrs. Litbach describes, or maybe it's on the video that like the head is turned around because it's looking back in the past or something. There was something yeah. to that extent that uh, kind of plays into this creepy design of the Mazik. Let's talk about it. I, I'm, I'm super curious. Uh, you know, for me, I felt like the, the exposition that we kind of get from the, the downstairs area kind of like you know, again, further gets us, you know, peels back the onion another layer. So we we kind of know a little bit about what's going on, but now we have sort of our mission of how to like defeat this monster. 10 years ago, I found an inscription in a text by Marshal Ben Shandov. It says, the only way to escape the Mazik is to burn its true face the first night it appears. If you do not do this by dawn, it will never leave you. And we get the sort of all over the walls. There's like scribbles and notes and uh, all sorts of clues that like this has been something that the uh, Mr. Litvak is, you know, preoccupied with trying to like figure out how to defeat this monster. So, yeah. I, I don't have so much to say about all of that, unfortunately, um, because I think all the thematic richness of that is very above board, right? Like, I think it's very, it's it's sort of like, um, for better or for worse, I think it's it's very, very clear what the, what it represents. Um, uh, and I think yeah. it works totally. And this is not a critique. It's just like, you know, it, it's, it's hard. There's, I don't, I think that all the unpacking is better felt than said in a weird way. Um, on, on, on that aspect, I will say, um, uh, fun facts in terms of just the movie magic of it all is that, um, the basement is actually on the second floor of the house. Uh, we, that's going to be magic. We cheated it. Oh, nice. um, and, then, uh, and then Liz Tunkel, who is our, uh, wonderful, uh, production designer. She just did a great movie called Emily the Criminal that came out this year, Bobby Plaza, but she, she, um, she did, uh, an incredible job decorating that room, uh, with TV, uh, I remember just being there and feeling like, wow, this is this is such grand work. And um, because Zach Cooperstein, our, our intrepid DP, um, is like makes Gordon Willis look like he's shooting, you know, Hulu TV in terms of how dark he goes. <laughs> right. I'm close to that, Coop. I'm very into that. 
But um, but because he does that, you can't see any of her work in that specific room. And I right. always, I'm like, oh, I'd be, I wonder, I feel bad because Liz does such a great job. But um, but it totally works, and it's it's um, you know, it's just funny to think to me that like you know, um, it's just that's filmmaking, right? It's it, you're you're working when you're working with so many talented, and this is the thing I'll say about the vigil is it was the first time I felt like we were working with everybody on the movie for the most part was like a craftsperson who really wanted to be there and loved the movie and was doing their best forward, and so inevitably one department would sometimes step on the toe of another department unintentionally, not like sure. it was just like when everyone's batting a thousand, you know, it, there's a, there's like a calculus you need to do. Um, anyway, sure. that's what you do with the question that you asked, just hearing a little bit more about that room is, is certainly interesting and it helps paint a, a, a broader picture or a better picture. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that room also, and I, I did pick up on a lot of stuff that was going on there and that fits into what I was saying at the beginning, that very, you know, for Jews by Jews, where it's just, there's so much attention to detail there. And again, it's not the stock, you know, Pirkeyeva, Sukkim that are kind of just like dribbled in there, but you know, even the way that, you know, Mr. Litbach is talking about this and the way that his, he's, his accent and just the way that it all feels sourced and just seeing those little snippets, there are those scraps that are kind of all over the board there. Like it just, it, it gives you the world with, again, it doesn't beat you over the head. You don't get that slow pan to read every single word right, over it, right, but, right, right, right. you know, you pick up on it. It's all there. But fun fact, Mr. Litvak is played by an actor named Ron Cohen, who is the husband, in, who was the husband in real life of um, Lynn Cohen, uh, who plays Mrs. Litvak. Oh, wow. That is cool. She, I don't know if she ever got to see the movie, unfortunately. She was, she was, uh, yeah. Left she, dynamic. Yeah. So just speaking of the, of their family, right? That that reminds me of that line where she mentions kind of offhand, she says, you think my children ran away because, you know, they like they were forced away. Like I, I drove them away. I made sure that they weren't here, which just fitting into the whole theme of the movie to me played like a really interesting case of breaking the aforementioned cycle we were talking about of generational trauma where it's she like, again, in the context of the movie, it's they needed to get out of the house to avoid, you know, the Mazik, but in the broader uh, metaphor of it all, it really is, I mean, it's very tragic that they had to remove themselves from the lives of their children, but it's almost like she recognized that they were so weighed down by their trauma that they experienced from the Holocaust. It was something that, unfortunately, in their lifetime, they were never going to get to break. And again, just stitching the whole story together, that's why they're stuck in the house for the later years of their lives, because they just can't get it out of them. So the only thing they can think to do is to fully cut off their children, to say, you you should have no part of our lives. We need you away as far away as possible to progress our family beyond this trauma. And I think this weighs into that question that I was posing earlier in the film, where it's, is the movie asked, is the, what, what's the movie suggesting in terms of our relationship as a, as a community, as, as Jewish people to our trauma in the past, right? Is the full break, is that, is that the answer? I mean, for their sake, they're fully successful. As far as we know, they're not going to be plagued by the Mazik anymore, but is there also that closeness? They're not showering, you know? Yeah. Like, but also, is there closeness that we can get from learning of this trauma and mm-hmm. being part of it? Like is, right. is Yaakov a, a better, a better success story because he is part of it. Although it's definitely going to traumatize him going forward. So I right. think that this posits just a really cool counterpoint to the story that we're getting. Yeah. I think the lit box are a case study really in what not to do. Like the, it, it destroys them. Uh, I mean, it was, you can't pass judgment on, on, I mean, they're fictional characters, so I guess. You sure. But, but you know, <laughs> But, um, but, but, you know, for the sake of this conversation, like, it's hard to judge people, you know, what they went through, um, how they responded, you know, an impossible situation. But that said, um, Yaakov is certainly the more of a success story. I mean, you know, I mean, not to get ahead of ourselves, but like, he's not scot-free at the end of the picture. Right. Um, no. But he's leaving the house and he's going to go, you know, get coffee with, with, with a girl to 
that stuff's significant, right? He's not, it, there is, he finds a path forward, which, which I think is the story of, 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 of Jews in the aftermath of, of, you know, kind of every calamity that they've experienced. And, um, they're only go, no good news, but they, they really, um, you know, that, that, pushing them away was was some of that obviously is to protect them and some of them is to wallow in their lot and i don't know you know i think that there right, is right um the, the movie is positing so much that it's it, you can spend hours unpacking kind of like a lot of just the lines that lynn puts out and there are small things in the movie that keith does I mean you know for example when the when the car goes by these are just like small details we put in but like mm-hmm. Car goes by when he's sitting um uh when the you know in the, earlier in the picture uh and you hear a train noise and you see barbed wire and it's hard to make out there's barbed oh, wire yeah. on the, there's stuff like that throughout the movie that's just small illusions that were conversation starters and that and that are extraordinarily loaded um and uh you know it's it, there are no easy answers that the movie's trying to put forward necessarily i mean that's kind of the movie the movie is um is is trying to encapsulate a certain feeling of the Jewish experience and 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 to that and to a larger and and to some other extent the human experience and a lot of that is better like i said a lot of that a lot of that is more useful when it's when it's digested and felt than explicated no question we definitely recommend our listeners to check out this movie cuz as much as you're getting from us you can't experience it I'm unless sorry. you're watching it well, I think JD did, did <laughs> no, give the I mean, warning up top that like everyone should kind of like pause the podcast at the beginning and of go course, check it out. Of course, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, so no, I, I I really agree, but I'm definitely also of the opinion that a great movie can't be spoiled. You know, and that no no movie, no matter how much you know about it, will compare right. to the actual experience of getting to yeah. uh, have it wash over you. JD, you kind of were just talking about um, leaving the house, and so that's like a a segue to, you know. I think after discovering all this stuff and, you know, he he runs upstairs and he finds Mrs. Lipbach and he's like, we got to get out of here. Like, we need to leave right away. She says, if you run out, the mother will make you crawl right back. So he runs out, you know, puts on his coat and starts running out. And, and we get, again, these like visceral cramping and cracking noises of his bones, his hands, and then his legs. And the further away that he gets from the house, he, you know, he's he, at a certain point, he can't walk anymore. He's maybe a block away. And uh, he starts to see the mazik. I think this is maybe one or maybe the first or second time that we're sort of seeing it a little bit more clearly each time, you know, first it's a shadow, then it's the outline of it. And now we're kind of seeing it with this sort of like backwards turned hands and these like very long fingers. So eventually he kind of like crawls back to the house and the closer he gets to the house, you know, his, his hands and legs work a little bit better. Uh, so then he comes back and he goes upstairs to, uh, where Mrs. Lipbach is, is waiting. And, uh, you know, she hands him a pair of tefillin from her husband and a candle. And, um, she says, you need to go, you know what you need to do. Like, I think, uh, you know, he, he needs to confront the Mazik. So he goes down after putting on this tefillin, we have this like nicely lit scene of him, you know, sort of wrapping tefillin and putting everything on. And I noticed this, this move, which is a pro move. I I appreciated that for those who are, uh, you know, listening, the sort of uh, way to put on your tefillin, but to like check that it's centered in your head and all that kind of stuff was there. So points awarded. Um, and then also just like, so he, he makes his way down the hallway, uh, and 
you know, the Mazik is waiting and also, you know, during this sort of confrontation, we see these like faces popping out of the side of, of the hallway and the Mazik's head like spins around very slowly with again, this crackling noise and uh, it becomes like an image of his own face. So then he hesitantly takes the candle, but then, and, and plunges it in into the Mazik's face and it burns his face and we get this sort of sc screeching and then he heads downstairs, uh, there we sort of see Ruben's body and it's sort of like contorting and crackling and he, he sits right beside it and he says to heal him and, and prayers and, and pleading him to let go of his past. Um, and so in a, in a flashback, we see Ruben remembering this sort of uh, flashback of, of the Holocaust uh, seen from the beginning of the film and the body uh, quiets down. So now that our monster's defeated and we have our final showdown, I wanted to talk about this before we kind of like wrap up the film. Does that work? Yeah, sure. My okay. favorite part of the movie is that extra sequence. I have a lot to say on this sequence. I want to hear some of your thoughts on it. I definitely want to know how you did the hallway with the, the faces and the hands sticking out of it. That was built, but you know, that wasn't what we wanted to do, I believe initially. I we wanted the hallway to have uh to to have um we couldn't afford this because extras and stuff, but we, we wanted the hallway to be um to, to be dark, really dark and in the shadows legions of ta of Jews in tattered clothing from all throughout history. Like, Ooh. like, um, wow. uh, just all of that surrounding him as he walks, about, I thought would have been extraordinarily a powerful image, uh, or certainly, you know, whatever, but, um, uh, but we couldn't. Yeah. Ms. Livak does say that this, right. She said she, or one of them says that they uncovered, they were able to see the past of this, uh, of this Mazik and that it's, it's clearly been around for a long time. It's right. been yeah, endlessly it's, tormenting Jews for generations. Centuries of like kind of Jewish, the withstanding of, 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 of that experience. And so, um, uh, we couldn't afford that. So the, 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 um, hallway was built and, uh, I think there was like a soft, Coverage, people are actually just putting up right. faces. Uh, yeah. um, but no, I, I I love that sequence and and um uh you know I I that him coming back downstairs and that even even to the point of you know if there's a Jewish star on the um on the the sheet over Mr. Lovelock's body mm -hmm. and at the end of the movie it's a Juden star. Uh, oh, hangs uh, into that. It's another small detail that Keith put in. Wow. And it's just like you know it's so like Michael Yzerski's score and that in that is just outrageously good i mean impossibly good considering you know the parameters and everything and michael uh actually uh keith uh did did direct an episode of guillermo del toro's uh, uh show on netflix and, and michael Yudowski did the score for that episode um but his work on the vigil is just like I, uh, unreal i mean it's it, you know it, it's it's out at, at, like outstanding and um i think he won an award it was nominated for an award in australia and i got to see like they did a whole orchestra with it cool. um but i wow. just you know, we were, it was, it knocks it out of the park and I, I tear up when I watch that sequence. Um, it's just so evocative. Yeah. I, I mean, I love that, you know, to, to draw like a, um, um, a more recent comparison, you know, I feel like in Stranger Things, like when they're like gearing up to battle and they're going to fight this demon, everyone's getting their like barbed wire swords and their trash can shields. And, and we have our hero rapping to fill in and like that's their weapon against this mazik and i just like love that like you know this is this is our hero like arming themselves with these these tools to kind of like defeat this uh this demon i, I just love the way that it was uh you know portrayed in, in in this film and and also using the candle as well i thought you know the lighting as as well was really beautifully shot and um 
you know, scary as hell, obviously, but, uh, I think, yeah, it really worked for me. Definitely. And, and it stuck out well. And the notion of like, after defeating the Mazik and, and sort of seeing the scariest thing that there is in the house, I think when Yaakov goes downstairs and he talks to Mr. Lipvok, he's, he's kind of like at peace and, and definitely just wants to assure him that the job is done and he can rest and he can kind of move on with his life. And he, he just felt very much at peace at that point. The, the tefillin part that you mentioned, that, that was really one of my favorite moments of the entire movie because, and we've spoken a lot about this in the past, we, we did just cover the Fablemans and by now hopefully it's out already, but just if not, I'll give you a glimpse into our, our conversation about it. We spoke about how a lot of that movie, and do, have you seen that one, JD? Did you see yeah. Fablemans? Yeah. So a lot of that movie, it felt like Sammy's relationship to Judaism was really through the isolation that it engendered in him and the trauma and that he had a very negative association with his uh, with his Jewish past. And, you know, he had a lot of means of escaping that, but none of them really involved his Jewishness in a way that I think I, I was hoping for with that movie. And with this one, I just think after being weighed down with all this trauma of, uh, you know, this, this Jewish trauma that's weighing him down. And as a character, we know who has progressively been moving away instead of the movie kind of rewarding that decision and pushing right. him even further away. It empowers him with these symbols of, I mean, that's filling you wrap it on your bicep, right? It's the symbol of Jewish strength and just right, says, right. you know, use these tools of faith, tradition, religion, whatever it is. And that's how you can progress. That's how you can move forward. You're carrying on in a much more positive sense. You're doing that, you know, mitzvah of, of the tefillin of carrying. And I think these are the tefillin of Mr. Litvox. So you're taking his legacy, propelling it beyond his death. And for that to just be his, his like you said, Daniel, his weapon of choice yeah. in, in defeating this mazik, I, it was so powerful. It really, you know, by the end of that, he's fully armed and ready. And when he does go downstairs and has that great moment with uh, with the body, he's he's fully, he's ready. He's not frightened. Yeah. He's coming in. He's the one who knows what to do. And and I want to talk about that scene also for a bit because that, that scene is also spectacular. Couldn't have said it better. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I love it. And another thing also is when he's done with the exorcism, the candles in the background go out. Oh, interesting. Wonderful touches that keep the... Yeah, so good. I loved it. So the exorcism, which I uh, I, I wanted to just give a little break to uh, to weigh in, but now I want to I want to jump in what I loved so much about that scene, and it's it's obvious. It's everything you were saying. It, it's what the narrative of this movie always was. You know, the mazik was this symbol for the repressed trauma from the pain that they were carrying, and but even just that subtle moment of it's not an exorcism where because normally you're comparing this to the exorcist, right? It's it's possession you know, by we a compel demon, the right? demon yeah. right we compel the demon to get out of you but flipping the language here when they when he's not talking to the mazik he's talking to mr Lipak. he's saying you have to let go of the past you have to move past this pain again uh, this is something that this whole lens of trauma of course is what the movie was always about but i definitely had a little bit of a moment where i was like oh it wasn't really the mazik it was the pain he has to let go on and just the way that that's communicated with the that flip of language i just thought was was so effective and you know he he ultimately calms down his body goes from contorting wildly to just settling peacefully and it's this really powerful and i i would say very strongly jewish moment of learning to move on from the the pain of some of the pain of the past I mean, it's Keith and I talk about this a bit. Like, it, Judaism doesn't have a, it, 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 it's 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 monotheistic in a way that, like, although although people might consider Christianity monotheistic, it, it there are there are power, like Christianity, there are other powers, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. In Judaism, we see that we recognize the world like there's only God, right? There's nothing that works against God, really, right? So even right. the antagonist in the movie. 
ostensibly is doing something for the is 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 not it's not an opposing figure. It's not like there's no idea of like God versus the devil, right? It's like there is God and everything serves God, and so therefore this thing is ultimately the, wants Yaakov to win. Right. right. That's kind of like right. that's that's um uh, uh again and not this this doesn't necessarily do affect your enjoyment or appreciation of the movie. And we're getting into kind of theology here, as my uh, as David Sachs would say, like there's only God, right? And so uh I would say uh, it, it, like you know, it, it, there's there's no um to your point, it's not him trying to um it's allow it's someone finding a way to exercise themselves, right? Exactly. Um like in Judaism, it's not like you look at you don't look at your Yeter Hara, we call it the, the evil inclination, right? You don't look at it as something that is trying to hurt you to get back at your creator. You look at something that's you trying to get you to fall so that you cannot fall and grow and have more strength for the experience of having overcome whatever, you know, bad impulses you may have. And so, um, you know, it's, 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 it's implicitly in a sense more rewarding and hopeful. Uh, and so that's why like, you know, um, it's complicated. We talked about like, well, should there be like that final, like Havda, like Jason Voorhees coming out of the lake at the end of Friday the 13th, you know? But it's like, well, that's not really, and we do have something part of, sort of like that at the end, but that's not, I don't, that's a big scare that it, to the point there's no stinger or anything. It's more just like, in a sense, of its own hopefulness. It's because it's not being disingenuous. It's like when Yaakov defeats this thing, it's not like there are no challenges in his life anymore, but he can live with the challenges. He understands challenges and he understands kind of the benefit um, that this experience has afforded him. You know, I got the sense like after hearing what you're saying, like that the Mazik, you know, as we said, like this traditional figure, you know, is is mischievous. And like, so are we to understand then that this Mazik was just kind of like having a laugh and kind of goofing around with him and did not mean to like cause him any sort of like harm oh, or no, 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 okay okay I don't, no, yeah what okay. i'm saying is it's okay. not it's not really mischievous it's trying yeah it is it's mischievous in the sense that it's trying to push his buttons yes it's yeah not it's not it, it but i think that the intent the goal of the movie is the outcome of the movie right to a certain extent like it's feeding on pain because mr litvak is allowing it to feed on pain mm-hmm. gotcha yeah, right the moment he is willing to let go of that pain, it will let go of him. So, and then it latches onto Yaakov, yes, but it, it latches onto Yaakov because Yaakov's not done yet. Like, he's not, his trauma's not over. He's working through it. Right. And as long as he works through it, it will tail him. But it'll tail him a block away. Right. That's a, that's a good, that's a good distinction of like, you know, that this Mazik does feed on like, you know, grief and sadness and things like that. And so, so as, as he kind of like works through a lot of the pain, the Mazik is like, all right. I'm done here. And then, yeah, pieces. And I think this answers some of the questions that I say we, but I think I've been posing them and answering them throughout, but just of what fair. that relationship, but what, what your relationship should be. And that, you know, stinger, we're calling it at the end where the Mazik is trailing him. It's not that, uh Oh, he's about to be haunted, right? It's not that Jason popping up out of the lake. It's, it's him cultivating a positive relationship with his past. One that's, he's not weighed down by it. He's not, his bones aren't getting crushed. He's not being pulled back inside. He can go on and move with his life, but he suffered from a very real trauma involving his, his brother who died. And I don't think the answer is supposed to be, Oh, forget about him and move on. You know, 
cut all your ties with your past. Like maybe his, uh, like the, the person in the beginning, the one who was leading the session in the beginning would tell him the footsteps leader in the beginning would tell him, you know, stop hanging out with Rip Shulam, ignore him. That's not the answer. It's not that you should cut everything off completely. It's that it's learning to live with it. It's learning to move forward while maintaining that relationship with the past. And I'll use this just to set up the last couple beats of the movie because sure. the movie really just ends the, uh, you know, the Hever Kadisha, that group of uh, Jews who come to relieve him after his Shomer, after him, his watching the body come in and take over for the body. And he has one final conversation with Rip Shulam where he says to him, you know, Yaakov, or, you know, I, I knew that would be a good experience for you. Do you want to come with me to, you know, to chakras, to, to morning prayers, to davening? And he declines. And, and this is what I wanted to call out, what I'm just sort of tying to that last point. But he doesn't say, no, I'm done with this forever. Right. He says, not today. No, you maybe go. he'll come back in the future. Maybe he'll, he'll daven. Maybe he'll show up to chakras one time. But for today, the healthy thing for him is to just, he's had, he's exercised, he's exercised his demons, so to speak. He's, you know, carrying some of that with him. He's going to walk away. He's going to go for coffee, but this, his past is not gone. His past will always be a part of him. And, uh, and just to actually finish the movie, he ends up walking away. And like we've been saying a couple of times, we see the Mazik sort of trailing him, but he walks out into the distance. A very blurry Mazik, which is how we kind of experience the Mazik. Most of the film is, is the sort of like blurry presence. Now, is the Mazik going to find someone else or, or is the Mazik kind of like We're sticking with Yaakov? Yaakov? It's following Yaakov, I think. I mean, that's how okay, feel. got it. Okay. You know, first of all, Yaakov, in Yaakov's fence, he did already die in chakras. Okay, even be a chitis, but he had a speaker shots come. Um, it's but, out. Uh, but no, you know, we wanted to make something that felt real and raw and honest and not... Um, patronizing and that and that felt like the best i believe that's how that character is walking away from that experience because he's not he's on a path right he's he's working through he's a he's a he's working through feelings but he's not arbitrarily bitter because he didn't you know it's not it's not um he's he's having he's having an existential crisis but it's not or he's been having an existential crisis but it has more to do with him than um, a projection on the outside world, if that makes any sense. So it's, you know, it's, it's, there's a nuance to experience. That was our discussion of the film, The Vigil. Let's take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll, we'll rate the film on a scale of one to five Jewish stars. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with J.D. Lishitz to discuss the film The Vigil. At this time, we're going to be uh, rating the film on a scale of one to five stars of David. We'll take a look at things like cast and crew, content and themes. You know me and my rubrics, Harry. You know, is there a kippa? Is there a davening? Is there a rabbi? I think we 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 got all of those things as far as like the the cast. You know, the director, Keith Thomas, is Jewish. Our stars, Dave Davis, Menasha Lustig, uh, Lynn Cohen, and Malky Goldman. I'm not sure if Menasha is Jewish. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not sure, not sure. Um, I would bet he is. Yeah, yeah. And, and a quick shout out to the movie Menasha uh, by Josh Weinstein. Uh, if anyone hasn't checked that out, that that's a great film um, also. Menasha is a great actor, really does a phenomenal job in both really films. Is. Yeah, it's and very uh, Jewish, very Jewish, very Jewish. Uh, so the yeah, no, the cast and the crew very Jewish. The content very Jewish. The themes very Jewish. A, a lot to say. I mean, or I, I would say, you know, like it's it's so Jewish. Definitely, it takes place in this Jewish world. I'm struggling to find like what the non-Jewishness of it all is. But you know, it's I'm having a very hard time. I want to hear what you what you all have to say because, like, you know, for me, it's like a straight. It's a it's a pretty straight uh, rating, but I'm I'm curious to know, uh, JD, was there anything? Uh, and uh, how do you, how would you rate your film? <laughs> I think it's a ten out of ten. I know it's normally five, but I feel like that's that's too low for how good the movie is. 
Uh, no, I'm, I'm kidding. I, I don't know. It's, it's, I think it's, I don't think there's anything like particularly now. I don't know if there's a more Jewish movie that's ever been made. All right. Just in terms of like, like seven no, Yiddish, dude. Like, what do you, how could you make a more Jewish movie? Right. I, I, don't know how you, I really don't know how to do it. Right. I mean, it's interesting that like, you know, the, the marrying of like a, a horror movie in, in this Jew, Jewish world, it's it, it, that obviously, you know, this, but you know, it's, 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 it's not traditionally what we would think of as like a Jewish film. And I think that makes it sort of, well, the only way it could be like a more Jewish film, if it was like, I don't know, it's, it's hard. I'm struggling. Yeah, it's like about a Jewish thing starring. <laughs> right. But it's, I really but, don't know. By the may, way, this movie came out in Europe theatrically at the same time as American Pickle, which was theatrically released in Europe. Uh, uh, and um, and I just think of like how anti-Semitic I would be if like I was like living in France and I, or the UK mm-hmm. and I went to which at the time was part of Europe and I went to the theater and I got two movies about about ultra Orthodox Jews like <laughs> right how many you know it's it it all I'm saying is I I, I think it's enough to make anybody uh, 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 a little suspicious so I'm happy that we didn't that our that our both my movie and and uh, Brandon Trost's movie didn't didn't start uh, didn't start any trouble right no that's good. For sure. Harry, what what do you think? I think this is, you know, impossible to argue one of the most Jewish movies we've seen. But I think it's for sure. some different reasons that, you know, we haven't always encountered. And a lot of that is uh, some of the things that you were outlining in the beginning, J.D., just talking about the way that some other quote unquote Jewish movies, and we've seen a couple of them, they really feel like they're pandering to this sort of Jewish crowd. They they come from this perspective right. that I think feels often unfamiliar with the with the intricacies of it and Clearly, they hired, you know, the, a lot of these movies, some consultants to familiarize themselves with some beats of it. But it's sometimes the Jewishness can be a vessel to tell the story. Sometimes it can be the context to tell the story. I really got the read when I was watching this movie that this was a movie that only could have been done by someone who was, you know, passionately Jewish, who understood that and told a story that is it doesn't sound like, you know, one, one of the big criticisms for a lot of Hollywood screenplays is when, you know, some people try to write roles for women, but what they'll do is they'll take a movie that was written for a man and then, you know, flip the name from, you know, a man's name to a woman's name and then just kind of recast it. And, you know, for, for various reasons, people will argue that doesn't feel like it was actually written for a woman with a woman in mind in a way that, you know, someone would experience. And I just think I, I felt like I was experiencing that as a Jewish person watching a lot of these movies and just feeling this one where I was just like, this is not just let's no one's ever told a, a Hasidic horror movie. Let's try to, you know, take the the classic Catholic spiritual horror and put it in the Jewish world. This this built off of very real you know, trauma that that's experienced in the Jewish world, very real experiences. We were talking about, you know, that experience with the footsteps. And, you know, we we all bonded over just having that the Revy that's kind of on top of you and just Every beat of this movie to me just felt like I, I said, I, I said I would say it a couple of times, but, yep. you know, by Jews for Jews in a, in a very real way. So, uh-huh. you know, I'll, I'll start us off on what I think will be a pretty unanimous ranking, but I'm, I'm going to give this five out of five Jewish stars. I, I just think, but it, but in a very exciting way, I was watching this and I was just like, yes. And we didn't even mention it. The movie ends with a great needle drop. There's a Zusha song that plays at the end, which was just for me, that was the camp on top of it. And I was just like, this, this movie was for me. It gets me. And I, I, I loved it. I, I really have. My partner, Rafi. That was, that was Rafi who picked, uh, picked that song. It was great song. Great moment. So five out of five for you, Harry, huh? Yeah, exactly. And JD, where did you come in? I forget. I, I, I think it was 10. I think 10. this is, yeah, this is the way, this is, this is the life hack to getting the five stars on a podcast. Like you got to just pick your own movie. Five stars. <laughs> there you go. Great. Love it. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm here with you, Harry. I think, you know, one of the 
the things that I liked about it more is it felt kind of like a documentary in some ways, where it's just like not taking a lot of hard stances on like, like you said, JD too, like not judging things one way or another. It's just, this is, this is this person's experience and this is how this person lives. And let's just, I don't know. I, I felt that, that it was like respectfully and authentically portraying what it, life is like for several characters in that orbit. You know, the aging person, the Holocaust survivor, the person like Menasha, who's kind of like, you know, a bit more, you know, embedded in the community and active in it. And then you have someone like Yaakov, who's kind of like on the outskirts of it. And, and, you know, the whole ecosystem that was built and the whole world that was built felt very authentic to me. So I'm also going to go five stars. So we have a 10 and a five and a five. So I think I feel like that's, you know. Pretty solid, pretty solid showing for the vigil here on Jews on Film. J.D. Lifshitz, thank you so much for being on Jews on Film. Really appreciate you taking the time to discuss uh, the vigil. I wanted to ask, uh, you know, if there's anything you'd like to plug or promote. Okay, people, I'm just going to warn your audience, this is going to be an exclusive Jews on Film break. By the time it airs, hopefully it'll have been announced and I won't get in trouble. So, so, but for you guys, for the audience of two that I'm in front of right now, this is a, an exclusive break, essentially. Um, so you can even announce it as an exclusive break because it'll be because it, it is an exclusive break. It's just coming out after it's an exclusive. So Quentin Tarantino is very graciously, uh, essentially theatrically releasing the film uh, uh, in January at the New Beverly Cinema, which is his theater in Los Angeles. Very so, cool. Uh, on film, actual film, not digital. Uh, so you will be able to. Uh, and the last time, you know, the film was bought for a theatrical release by Blumhouse and then uh, COVID happened and it didn't get that release and it ended up on Hulu. And so, um, you know, the last time I saw the movie with a, with a real audience in a theater was at the Toronto Film Festival. So um, this is extremely cool. The first screen will be January 7th. It'll be every Saturday night in January. But the first screen will be January 7th. And Mike Flanagan, the creator of Haunting of Hill House on Netflix and, and uh, many other hit, hit programs. Uh, or several other shows for Netflix uh, and, and director of quite a few movies. He will be doing the first Q and A. Uh, we're hoping to have guests for all the show for all the screenings, um, but it will be director in attendance and a guest moderator in attendance at every screening. Hopefully, uh, get starting with Mike Flanagan. Um, and uh, so, please, please, everybody, come down, come on down to the New Beverly Cinema, the best theater in, in certainly in the United States, uh, um, you know, if not the world. Um, certainly our favorite theater, a bold light favorite theater, um, uh, you know, and, and see, see, um, the, the, uh, theatrical re-release of the picture. The first time it'll be screened for an audience on, uh, 35 millimeter and, uh, and courtesy of, uh, the director of my favorite Jewish movie of all time and Warriors Bastards, uh, and, and, and probably my favorite movie of all time as well. Uh, so, so yes, very, very excited about this. Awesome. And any exciting movies coming out soon that you'd want to like, uh, make Becky our two. listeners. Becky two, but there's no release date yet. But yeah, okay. Becky Two is Becky Two is probably probably the next release. It's not the most recent thing we've shot, but it is the most it is the most uh, it's the one that's probably going to come out first. Sweet. Okay. Awesome. Well, we'll we'll definitely have some links in our show notes for everyone to check out a lot of the past work. And for anyone uh, who hasn't gotten the hint already, we should definitely check out the Vigil because it is a uh, scary uh, movie. Yeah. Fun, go ahead. fun 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 fact: Lou Wilson, star of Becky, Jewish, surprisingly Jewish. Nice. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, very, very, it's always fun when you find out someone you had no idea. But, but Lulu Wilson indeed is Jewish. Awesome. Right. Yeah. Harry, it is Thursday night, and I'm putting you on blast here. Any any recipes to fuck? No. Uh, JD, if you, listen, if you listen before, sometimes Harry has graced us with like awesome 
like schnitzel recipes, like adding the honey to the schnitzel. Sorry to blow up your spot, Harry, but I he's a great cook, and so I just want to, you know, know that is that. that is your art, Harry. You know what I'm saying? In addition to this exactly. podcast, Harry makes a mean schnitzel. So yeah, pod, podcast comes second. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, thank you everyone for listening this far to Jews on Film. We really appreciate it. Uh, we're you know we're kind of winding down our year, but we wanted to thank everyone for listening and uh, make sure to. You know, check us out on all our social medias. We're on Instagram, on TikTok, on Facebook, on on all the things, all the platforms. Yeah, thanks so much for listening, everyone, and we will see you later. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Harry Ottensasser and Daniel Zana. Daniel and Harry edited this episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening.